Good morning. It's a pleasure for me to be here with you all. Tyndale Seminary holds a special place in my heart because many years ago, I taught here at Ontario Bible College and Seminary. And coming back here is a little bit like coming home because I also was the first pastor of the Malaysian Singaporean Bible Church here in Toronto that's now called Life Springs. And it was nice to be with the leadership and preach at the church on Sunday. Today, in this Tyndale uh, Chapel, I want to share with you a message that I have preached in my home church, which is First Evangelical Church Glendale, a mini Chinese-American church. I've been doing a series of expository sermons from the book of Philippians uh, for the last six months or so. And today, I want to share with you a, a, a message based on Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. And um, just before we uh, look into the text, and uh, cover the topic of true security, colon, God's peace. I want to talk about true security, God's peace. Let's, let's pray again. So dear God, thank you. Thank you so much for Tyndale Seminary, for all the good things that are happening here. I ask for your richest blessings for this place and the people who serve you here, the faculty, the staff, the students. May your spirit continue to touch lives and prepare lives for service in your kingdom in various ways. Now we pray as we look into your word, Oh God, you will speak to us. And not only speak to us, but I ask in the name of Jesus that by the power of the Holy Spirit, oh God, you will breathe your peace upon us. You will give us the gift of peace, the peace of God that passes all understanding. And we ask that you will be glorified as we wait upon you and listen to your word, that your spirit will empower the preaching and teaching of your holy word, that uh, you will transform us to become more like Jesus. And you will protect us from evil. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned in my class uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, the class on <clears throat> counseling and the Holy Spirit, that um, one of the topics that is very infrequently covered in churches and by pastors and preachers is the whole topic and area of mental health and the church. The American Association of Christian Councils, or AACC, has uh, conducted actually several major national conferences in the last few years on mental health and the church, called the summit conferences in, in several major churches in, in the United States. And I've spoken at several of them. And they're called the summit. Uh, and the struggle is real. That's a subtitle of, of these special conferences on the church and mental health. The struggle is real. And if you know anything about the epidemiological uh, data and the demographics of the incidence and the prevalence of mental disorders, in any particular group, sample, or population, at least about 10% or more of the people have some kind of a significant diagnosable mental disorder. And that's already a low estimate. That means in every church, whatever the size, just take about 10 to 15% of the people, they will have significant struggles. And they're going to struggle in silence if we pastors and preachers and church leaders do not talk about it openly and diffuse the kind of fears and stigma that many of us have against seeking help for mental health uh, struggles. Of course, you all know that some years ago, Rick Warren's son you know, um, died by suicide. And now the latest in the field is that we don't say that people commit suicide. I just took a continuing education course on suicide and suicide prevention a few months ago, and um, the uh, thinking and the uh, practice right now is to say that people have died of suicide, not committed suicide. 
Because committing suicide sounds like you have committed a crime. No? And a suicide is a very sad thing. And sometimes people die by suicide not because of, of um, deliberate uh, reasons, but uh, there are other reasons that sometimes account for that. So in any case, uh, I'm not talking about that today. You might be wondering, you know, you're talking about true security, about God's peace. And uh, does uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 9 talk about suicide? No, it doesn't. I'm not going to eisegete the text. I'm going to exegete the text with you and for you. But I want to focus on this topic. But it has relevance. And this text, especially in Philippians, uh, is very relevant to a biblical perspective on anxiety. Okay, so let's go through the text a little bit. Um, <clears throat> uh, one or two comments before I look into the text, uh, verse by verse. I usually preach in an expository style, so I go verse by verse. You know, we live in a world today that is very, very high in anxiety. The American Psychological Association, for example, has conducted surveys nationally in, in the United States uh, over the last couple of years, especially, last few years. And they, the, the surveys have shown that the incidence uh, of uh, anxiety has skyrocketed. The stress, especially as younger people uh, have been surveyed, has skyrocketed. Because in the United States, as you know, politically and otherwise, there is tremendous divide. And the whole country is in a tremendous state of, 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 of turmoil and uncertainty and other things. I'm not sure about Canada and Canadian politics, but I'm not here to talk about politics. But all over the world, you know. And we just had an earthquake in Southern California not, uh, not too long ago, a week or so ago. And we felt it in, in L.A., although it was in Ridgecrest, uh, further up uh, 150 miles north. So all kinds of stuff happening in this world, all kinds of uncertainties, all kinds of anxiety-provoking situations. And people are longing for peace. I wrote a book some years ago called Rest, Experiencing God's Peace uh, in a Restless World. But today, in 2019, years later, our longing for peace and for security is even greater. And people try to find peace and security in many different ways. Sometimes some very negative and destructive ways. In the wrong use of money, sex and power, and addictions and so on. But there's no real peace there. And then some others will use uh, religious and spiritual means of trying to achieve some level of uh, peace within and today, in 2019, even the field of, of secular psychology and counseling, you know, the whole um, development of mindfulness-based therapies is now in the foreground. Mindfulness. And those approaches to therapy oftentimes you know, uh, base their uh, interventions on Zen Buddhism and so on. But some, if in more Christianized versions, have gone back to the early church fathers and mothers in the church history period of the patristics and uh, gleaned from the contemplative and meditative traditions of the early church fathers and mothers in desert spirituality. There are Christian versions of mindfulness where our focus is on now, on the present, but in Christ, based on the Word. So mindfulness practices, meditation practices, they are becoming more and more popular. And people are running to those uh, practices to try to achieve some semblance or level of peace. But if you look at those things carefully, you also find that uh, they are predicated on our self-effort. If you try hard enough, if you know how to meditate enough, if you know how to be mindful enough, then perhaps you can concentrate on the present more than the past or the future, and then perhaps you have some level of stability and peace. But what if I'm a lousy meditator? What if I'm not good at mindfulness? I can try all of these techniques and I might not succeed. And so peace in the world is almost something you try your best to achieve. It's almost a paradox, almost not just a paradox, almost a contradiction in terms. You try so hard to be at ease. Do you see the, the, the contradiction there? 
you know. And the Bible has a very different view. Jesus says, you know, uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Peace I give unto you. Peace I leave with you. And then after his resurrection, he breathed peace upon his disciples. It's a gift from God. And now our text before us, Philippians chapter 4, will tell us what are some uh, steps or secrets that we can apply into our lives uh, from God himself as to how to experience his peace. So I'm going to go through verse by verse. The first few verses, just some brief comments. Can we have the text now? Thank you. So that you can follow me. In verse 1, the Apostle Paul here says, writing to the church in Philippi, one of his favorite churches who supported him and who loved him, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Okay. So you see, for example, in verse 1, a glimpse into the pastoral heart of Paul. Most of, all, most of us know Paul as the uh, you know, amazing apostle. But we must not forget that he was also an amazing pastor. All by the grace of God. All in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not out of self-effort. Paul is very clear to say that, you know, it's not I, but Christ who lives in me. It is only by the power of the Spirit. Okay? It's only by grace. So he calls the people there in the church at Philippi. And that's the way we should address one another in our churches and our communities of faith, even here at Tyndale. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, we are family. My brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for. And Paul does not mince his words. He waxed a bit sentimental here. I long for you because he was in prison, most probably in Rome while he was writing this letter, and whom he loves. See, a pastor is first and foremost a shepherd who cares for the sheep and who loves the people of God that he or she is serving. We have to be very careful today with the tendency in mega churches and other church contexts to use the CEO, corporate model of running church. The church is not primarily an organization. The church is first and foremost an organism made up of living cells, living people. And God calls us as pastors and church leaders to shepherd His flock, to shepherd His people. In John's Gospel, after his resurrection and after Peter had denied Christ three times, Jesus gave him another chance and he, in quotes, ordained Peter after that. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? He says, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Tend my flock. Feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. The shepherd model. Not the CEO model. And the shepherd model means we follow the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, the good shepherd himself, Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. The shepherd model means that we have to have humility, we have to have brokenness, we have to have love, we have to have genuine caring for the people that we're pastoring. That can only come by the work of the Holy Spirit, transforming our hearts into hearts of tender love and caring for people, as well as wisdom and truth, that we speak the truth in love, as Ephesians 4 tells us to do that, to build up the people of God. And so Paul shows us his heart here, you see. He calls them brothers and sisters. He really loves them and longs for them. And he looks at them as his joy and his crown. And he tells them to stand firm in the Lord in this way. And then he repeats himself even more in the last couple of words here. Dear friends. I can go on and on with one verse, but you know my point here. 
Is that the attitude that we have as pastors and church leaders or those of us here who are students being trained for pastoral ministry or missions work or other kinds of parachurch ministry? How do we look at the people that we are serving? How do we serve them? Is this love, this deep longing for them, this uh, joy in them, this dearness that he felt, that Paul felt, is this in us? Then he goes on in a concrete way to talk about a very practical conflict that was existing in the church at Philippi at that time, about 2,000 years ago. Verse 2, I plead with Eodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord because they were having conflicts. If you think that there were no women leaders in the church, then this is a verse that tells you there were leaders in the church, women leaders. But they were in conflict. Eodia and Syntyche. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, a friend there, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Eodia and Syntyche. Real women, real names, real people in the church at Philippi with a real conflict, probably holding grudges against one another, perhaps based on some misunderstanding or whatever the conflict was, we don't know. This will happen in all of our churches. People are people. We're all fallen, sinful beings. Conflict is inevitable in the church. But we need to know how to reconcile, how to forgive. And Paul pleaded with them to be of the same mind, to reconcile, to be united again. And so, that is the first uh, part of this text. Then from verse 4 to verse 9, you can call this the biblical prescription or the biblical perspective on dealing with anxiety. It is relevant to mental health and the church. I know that Paul did not write this letter thinking, having in mind how to deal with anxiety disorders, but he had in mind how to deal with the struggles of many of the people in the church at Philippi, and all of us by uh, application. And that is our tendency to worry and to fear and to have anxiety. So we start at verse 4. Most people will start at verse 6, but I think verse 4 is relevant. He first says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. When the writer of any book in the Bible repeats himself or herself, pay attention. There's a reason for that. Because the first time you might miss it. So Paul says it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul knew that the best way to cope with the ups and downs of life and with the vicissitudes of life in a world that is, uh, you know, uh, fallen and sinful and, and things suck most of the time, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. He knows that we cannot rejoice in the circumstances always. Circumstances go up and down. But he had learned, another part of the text, he says that, you know, of, of, the, of the book, rather, in the book of Philippians, that he has learned in whatever state he is in to be content to be satisfied because Jesus is enough. Our rejoicing is in the Lord. If our focus is in the Lord, we stay in the Lord and we rejoice in Him because of His love for us and His liking for us too. God just doesn't love us. He likes us and He's with us and for us, not against us. We have enough time to let that sink in and the grace of God touching us by the power and anointing of the Spirit, tenderizing our hearts with the very love of God for us, the apple of His eye then we can rejoice. Even everything around us goes wrong. Like Habakkuk says, Habakkuk 3, I will rejoice in the Lord. 
I will joy in the God of my salvation. So that's the first point of how to deal with anxiety. The Bible says, learn to focus on Jesus. Learn to rejoice in the Lord. Learn not to live according to circumstances, although circumstances do affect us, but we don't have to be overwhelmed by them. The Lord alone is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the only constant anchor for our souls in a world that's gone crazy and mad with so many changes whirling around us so quickly. So rejoice in the Lord. And secondly, he goes on to say in verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And New Testament scholars, people who have written commentaries in the book of Philippians will tell you that uh, there are different ways of exegeting and interpreting this next verse. Well, the first part of the verse is clear. Let your gentleness be evident to all. So gentleness, which is a fruit of the Spirit. If you look at Galatians 5, 23 the fruit of the Spirit is, not are, is, singular, Actually, it's agape love, one main fruit, followed by eight other uh, aspects of agape love, including gentleness. We don't live in a very gentle age today. And some Americans, Caucasians, Western folks, are very, very attracted to Buddhism because of the gentleness of the Buddhist way. The Christian way is not often manifested very gently. We can be very violent, we can be very aggressive in our witnessing, we can be very loud in how we criticize others, you know. And that's why surveys of American Christians have often shown in the last 10, 20 years, you know, that people look at us as hypocrites, bigots, prejudiced, narrow-minded people who are always condemning and judging others. Paul says, let your gentleness be evident to all. True Christianity is focused on Jesus, centered in Him, the gentle one. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's part of Christ-likeness. And the Greek, gentleness actually can also be translated as graciousness, reasonableness, being considerate. These are all synonyms for the Greek. Are we gentle, gracious, reasonable, considerate? See? And if we learn to walk in the Spirit, learn to become more like Jesus, not by self-effort, but by surrender to the Spirit and allow Him to transform us into Christ-likeness, which is what spiritual formation and true discipleship is all about, which is what the main reason for the existence of the church is all about. Dallas Willard, when he was alive, made it very clear that the primary and only goal for the existence of the church is the spiritual formation of its members. Everything else is secondary. It's to become more like Jesus, focus on Jesus, hanging out with Jesus in the power of the Spirit, by His grace, using the spiritual disciplines in a non-legalistic way, and we become more and more like Jesus day after day after day. It takes time. Eugene Peterson, before he died, wrote a book that was republished in the 20th anniversary edition called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And gentleness will come forth. See? So we walk with Christ. We abide in Him. We allow the Spirit to transform us. And gentleness is an antidote to anxiety. You see? Most anxious people are not very gentle. Most anxious people are very driven. Most anxious people are very caught up with their goals and their, uh, you know, their, the, 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 the muckers that they are trying to achieve and so on, including pastors and church leaders. Their five-year plan, their ten-year plan, all the corporate markers, their attendance, number of baptisms, buildings, budgets, all kinds of stuff. they preoccupiers that are actually very, very secondary, if not unnecessary. 
Dallas Willard says the church simply is a group of believers, disciples of Christ, really, really in love with Jesus, who have tasted the reality of eternal life in Christ now, not just in heaven to come, eternal life now and in heaven to come. There's a group of people getting together, hanging out with Jesus on a regular basis, studying His Word, learning from Him, praying together, learning from the Holy Spirit, and being transformed into Christ-likeness. And they will send, be sent out by Jesus. Because if you become more like Jesus, you can never be selfish. If you become more like Jesus, you will care more about your neighbor than yourself. If you become more like Jesus, you'll love God and love your neighbor as yourself. You know Christ and want to make Him known. So missions and evangelism and outreach and social concern, all the other things, those are fruit. Those will come. You don't have to worry about that. Our focus is on abiding in Christ, rejoicing in the Lord, learning gentleness in Him. And then the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Meaning the Lord is with you, close to you. He's near. He's with you, yes. But it can also mean the Lord is near in, the, in terms of His second coming. The second coming of the Lord is near. Jesus is coming back soon. So be gentle. Rejoice in Him. Live in the reality of eternity. Okay, and now we come to the crux of the text in terms of its dealing with anxiety. Verses 6 to 9. Let's uh, look at verse 6 now, okay? So here Paul says very clearly, do not be anxious. Uh, 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 do not worry about anything. You know. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything or in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God or present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I don't have much time to expound on this too much, but I want you to notice a few things here. So the antidote to anxiety now in this, in this section is prayer, right? Yes and no. Paul doesn't say, do not worry about anything, okay? Or do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, pray. He didn't say that. He did say, do not worry about anything, meaning that worry is sin. You know, some of us don't think that worry is sin. Some of us think that to worry is good. You know? Now, to be concerned is not sin. To be burdened by something is not sin. But to be worried, to be wrecked with fear and anxiety about the future and about things and about money and about provisions and this and that, that is not good. That shows that we do not trust God who is sovereign, you see. So Paul is serious. Do not worry about anything but pray. Is that what he said? No. Look at the text. But by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. That's the difference. I have people in my church who tell me, Pastor Tan, I pray. I pray all the time about my worry. I'm so worried, but I pray and pray and pray, and I worry more. I said, okay. I, I follow Philippians, and I pray and pray and pray, and I worry more. I don't have the peace of God. God is letting me down. Philippians 4 is fake. Fake news. It's not true. <laughs> then I asked them, did you read the text in context? What does Paul really say? Not just pray. Not just pray anyhow. With petitions, that means cry out to God. Yes, that's good. Complain, tell God your worries. That's good. But it's not enough. Paul says, with thanksgiving. That's the secret. You come to God with your worries. 
You cry out to God with your lamentations. You cry out to God with your burdens. You cast them upon Him. And then you go on and pray biblically. You go on and pray the promises of God. You go on and pray, but God, I know you're in control. I know you love me. I thank you that you're with me. I thank you that you have my back. I thank you that you're for me. I thank you that your grace is sufficient one day at a time. I thank you that you'll provide for all my needs according to your riches in Christ Jesus in glory. Especially spiritually, not always financially. But even financially, I trust you for that. I know you will not provide for my wants necessarily, but you will provide for my needs. I thank you. I thank you that I can trust you. And I thank you especially for your peace and for your presence with me. You see, you go on to pray through the promises of God. Pray through biblically with thanksgiving. And the positive psychologists have found that people who are thankful have much better mental and physical health. If you learn to be thankful, if you, thank, if you are thankful for three things every day, Usually your mental and physical health is better. But we're not just thankful for thankfulness' sake. It's not just gratitude for gratitude's sake in the gratitude research. For Christians, we're thankful to God. We're not just thankful for anything and everything. We're thankful to God for the blessings He's given to us. So pray, but with thanksgiving. And then the peace of God that transcends all understanding will, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, a garrison of soldiers guarding you, keeping you. So, in other words, as you pray, God will release His peace to you. And He'll guard you and keep you stable and secure in His love for you. That will be the foundation of peace for you. So you don't try to achieve peace. You just cast your cares in prayer to God and you be thankful to God. And God will give you His peace. And then two more things quickly. Verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if, there's any ex- if, it is, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Another translation would be choose to think on these things. We have a choice what we focus on in our mind. And cognitive therapists will tell you that's my area of expertise, that your thinking affects your feelings and your behavior a lot. Some therapists emphasize feelings a lot, but feelings don't happen in a vacuum. Feelings oftentimes are dependent on relationships, but also on your thinking. Negative thinking leads to negative feelings, to negative behavior. Realistic, reasonable, helpful thinking leads to better feelings and behavior. And biblical thinking especially. So Paul says choose to think on what is true based on scripture, what's noble, what is pure, what is lovely, what's admirable, if there's any excellence any praise, what is uh, praiseworthy, think on these things. So think biblically. Choose to think God's thoughts, God's word. And this is where scripture memory, good old scripture memory, that's forgotten, that's a forgotten art, forgotten spiritual discipline today, is so important and helpful. The more scriptures you know, the more you put scripture into your head, the more the Holy Spirit can remind you of God's truth to keep you stable and solid in Christ. Thinking. Biblically. And finally, verse 9. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Put it into practice, which means what? Do. So pray biblically with thanksgiving, think biblically, and do biblically. Put it into action. One recurrent finding from systematic research on what works or doesn't work for phobias and irrational fears in the field of secular psychology, counseling, and clinical work is the principle of exposure. The best treatment for phobias and irrational fears is exposure to what you're afraid of. 
If you're afraid of driving, then you drive more and more. If you're afraid of the water, you go into the water, in the pool more and more. You see, with the therapist guiding you to gradually desensitize you from it, to expose you so that your anxiety goes up and it plateaus and eventually it'll go down. And Paul is implying a very similar thing. Put it into practice. Face it. Go and do it by faith, whatever God calls you to do. Fear not. The Lord is with you. And sometimes we need a therapist or counselor to help us with that. But there is hope in these areas. Anxiety disorders and phobias are treatable. One of the most powerful means of treating anxiety and phobias and worries and fears is the um, therapy called cognitive behavior therapy or CBT. But other therapies are, are helpful too. So do not be afraid to seek help if you need help in this area. But today as I end my message, I want to end on a note of encouragement to all of us. Paul tells us that the Lord is with us. He tells us again these five things. Rejoice in the Lord who really, really loves you and likes you. And again, I say rejoice in Him. Number two, as you rejoice in Him and abide in Him, let gentleness flow because a gentle spirit is an antidote to anxiety. And number three, pray biblically with thanksgiving. Think, number four, biblically. And number five, put it into practice. Not by your self-effort, but with God's help. Put it into practice. Face it with the Lord. And He will help you. May God's peace be with you. Let's pray. So dear God, we thank you for your word. And for your assurance to us that you want to give us your peace. And that we have steps we can take by faith. In the power of the Spirit. To walk in the way of peace and gentleness. And ask you to help us all to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, Paul says rejoice. To be gentle and gracious people. To pray biblically with thanksgiving. To think biblically based on your word. And to act biblically taking steps of faith. To face whatever we need to face with you. So bless us now with your peace. With a benediction of love, joy and peace from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we go forth from this place, that we will glorify you and rejoice in you always, because you are sufficient for all of our needs, including our struggles with anxiety and worry. Thank you, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.